it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moment of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Bottom of the hour, Rich Larry will join me. Uh, Greg Jarrett is in studio. If you're smart enough to get Fox Nation, you recognize him. Uh, he's all over the channel. He's got a brand new book out, and it is called. Uh, well, it's a great book, and it is called The Constitution of the United States and Other Patriotic Documents. Uh, we're going to be getting to all that in just a moment. Also, we're trying to track everything that's going on over in San Francisco because the president uh, of China is here for the first time in six years. So before we get uh, started with Greg, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Are you thinking about running for president? I don't know what the future lies. I know that we can't continue the direction we're going. People feel politically homeless. That I feel politically homeless. You do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what does that mean, Joe? He's talking in riddles. Uh, Manchin and his presidential minute. Will he make a run? Fewer and fewer Dems seem confident that Joe can do it and beat Donald Trump. In fact, Trump is not only beating Joe head-to-head, he's beating Gavin Newsom. Number two. Major escalation there as well in Gaza as the IDF presses forward, entering now the Al-Shifa hospital. This is the largest hospital in Gaza where the IDF says today it was able to find weapons, ammunitions, and more military infrastructure inside that hospital. That is something that we've heard from the Pentagon this week. If they're not at uh, children's facilities uh, or at mosques, they're in the basement of big hospitals. First time, as I mentioned, in years. President Xi meets with President Biden in America. Expectations are low. The risks are high. What do you expect to come from these meetings? And, Greg, I'll put that to you right now. You're a well-read man. Not only do you write, but you read. Do you, what do you expect is going to happen when this meeting's all said and done? I actually read and comprehend simultaneously. How can which, that be done? Which is I'm, an incredible I, talent. did not know that could happen. <laughs> yeah, I wish some... Buddy in Washington had that, that ability. Right, they're just fighting too much. Yeah, you know, you had a guest on this morning, I believe it was, that um, said this was a uh, Joe Biden begging tour. That uh, John Radcliffe. Know, yeah, Radcliffe said that. And, and it's true. I mean, they, you know, he is trying to raise his stature on foreign policy after the debacle in Afghanistan and his mishandling of so many other foreign policy matters so that, you know, he wants the stature of uh, Xi uh, standing next to uh, to him to elevate his bona fides as his foreign policy guy. I come back to the uh, cautionary words of Barack Obama, who confided in a friend and talking about Joe Biden, never underestimate Joe's ability to screw things up. And I cleaned that up for your audience. Uh, Obama used a different word. So uh, today in, in Manhattan, we're back to this civil trial with the Trumps. And I, I'm personally offended by it, but I'm not burdened with a legal education. Uh, with a, <laughs> I didn't go to burden. law school, right? It's something to carry. I, I for the life of me, I think they're punished. This is the most obvious political display of using the courts for your own political and personal gain sure. that I've ever seen in my life. And any rich person who might be conservative or have have 
somewhat uh, unorthodox political views would be crazy to ever do business in New York. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, Letitia James, uh, egged on by the judge, is using this cockamamie consumer protection executive law that not only violates the First Amendment protections on commercial speech, but it egregiously undermines uh, more than a century of established common law on civil fraud, that you have to show an intent to deceive that somebody knowingly made false statements. Trump relied on professionals, expert uh, real estate people, accountants, uh, top law firms. Uh, in the United States to come up with these financials with a disclaimer clause in the document that said you right. banks need to do your own diligence, which they did. So, Greg, the thing that's so astounding is that and this was just blew me away. Everything about the civil trial shocked me. Number one, the judge said, I read the documents. I listed the testimony, watched the video. Uh, you you defrauded everybody. Yeah. Uh, and you owe two hundred and fifty million dollars. Now, let me see. For, let me start the trial and find out what else you owe. And then they quickly tried to take his business licenses away and and put his company into receivership. And a court stayed that. And now everybody knows he's going to be found guilty of this. And the question is, how quick can he get a stay in terms of an appeal? What I've heard from other scholars that say the further up you go in the courts, the less political it is. But how do you see this staying out, uh, playing out? Except that the higher courts in New York State are equally dominated by uh, Democrat appointees. Uh, But as I mentioned, there are federal issues here. And so once you've exhausted uh, the state court system, you move to the federal courts on a constitutional basis. So and he, he stands a much better chance. I mean, I think the good news for the Trump family is the yes, the fix is in and Goron, the judge is going to rule against the Trumps. But I do not see this standing up under uh, judicial scrutiny in the higher courts. And also, what's the deal with every attorney turning on him in Georgia, taking the deal and telling the story behind the scenes that led up to January 6th? We're looking at a situation where people have explained to me, if you're ordinary income, ordinary wealth, you can't possibly withstand this scrutiny. The minute they got indicted and arrested, you are wiping out your legal, you're wiping out any modest fortune you might have. Even if you're in a a normally lucrative profession like being a lawyer, you really have no choice. Look, this racketeering statute uh, with which Trump has been charged by Fonnie Willis, the hyper-partisan Democrat, a district attorney in Georgia, uh, is, is the biggest stretch of the law that I've ever seen. Uh, you have to show that Trump was involved in an organized criminal enterprise. There was nothing organized uh, about what Trump was doing. And even if you can show that there was a conspiracy, you have to show he was actually an active participant in it. And, you know, look, he exercised his rights first by filing legal challenges in court and then challenging uh, the electoral count, which you are entitled to do by law under the Federal Electoral Count Act. That's not racketeering. That's exercising your rights. 
Uh, so, Greg, what made you put this book together to get through and have the success you've had as a lawyer? You got to know these documents. What made you feel as though I need to put this in and provide some analysis? Because there's no other book out there like it. I looked for it. Uh, there are a couple of books uh, that have the Constitution but not the Bill of Rights. They don't have a, a fair and balanced uh, summary and reprinting of all the great speeches and addresses and letters and pamphlets throughout American history unless they, you know, emphasize Hillary Clinton's speeches. And so I don't have an agenda here. I have both conservative as well as liberal points of view. This is philosophically a patriotic book. It is a tribute to the many patriots who made America mm. great, our luminous beacon of hope for justice and prosperity and liberty that is mired and envied throughout the world. I mean, right now it's called the Constitution of the United States and other patriotic documents. We started out without a constitution. We were playing off the Articles of Confederation. Yeah, which didn't that, work. Quite, quite frankly, didn't work. Do you, can you put in perspective how close this whole thing came to collapse after the Revolutionary War victory? Yeah, it did come close to collapse because the articles were so weak. For a decade, they lasted. And, you know, a unicameral legislature was simply unworkable. There was no strong chief executive. The nation was spiraling into horrible debt, and it was about to collapse. You know this from your books as well. And, you know, uh, great leaders stepped forward and on the outline of John Adams of how a government should work, they crafted carefully the United States Constitution. It wasn't perfect immediately. Uh, they had to adopt a Bill of Rights. The great failure, of course, was this Faustian bargain. They didn't abolish slavery. Um, as a bargain to get Southern acceptance of the Constitution, they left it uh, to others that would follow, like Abraham Lincoln, uh, to do the right thing. To add amendments to the Constitution because, yeah. it's, uh, because it's something that had to evolve with the times. Yeah, and of course it evolved into a, a great civil war. There are overlaps, by the way. I, I loved your book about Frederick Douglass, who is featured prominently in my book, uh, Abraham Lincoln's fav uh, famous addresses, uh, uh, Douglass lamenting the hypocrisy of slavery. All of that is in my book. You can read these inspiring words and galvanizing ideas in my new book on the Constitution and patriotic documents. Do you do the book on tape, too? Yeah, uh, it is on tape, but I didn't voice it. My last one I did— you. Well, it's 500 and some odd pages. Uh, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Your other book was so great. Uh, Booker T. Washington, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, important uh, addresses that they delivered are, are in my book as well. And, and so you and I have a lot in common on this. Right. Uh, so you got the speeches, you have the documents to give people a perspective. The next time you want to put a noose around a statue and pull it down because that person didn't live up to your lofty expectations, maybe you should have a perspective on where we've been in the yeah. past and how significant that man or woman was. Americans, especially young Americans, have been betrayed by our public schools. We did a segment, I don't know if you saw it the other night, on 
on Fox in which men on the street went out, asked people fundamental civics questions about, you know, what was the Revolutionary War about and the Civil War? Who won the Cold War? What what was the Cold War? Some young woman said, oh, uh, it was chilly back then. Students are so underserved by public schools and you know, I would hope uh, that parents would buy this book and use it as a guide to properly educate uh, their children who have the blessing of living in the greatest nation on earth. Right. And people should get a perspective. And I always say, too, if you read and you study and you understand and you think you found a better country, travel and, Go there. and, and you can stay. Yeah. But everybody comes back. Including everybody Frederick. wants to get in here. Look at our border. Including Frederick Douglass. Yeah. The guy was born a slave, a fugitive, goes overseas, is treated like a rock star. And they go, where are you going? Going back. You're going back? They could arrest you. So he had people pulling money in order to pay off uh, the slave owner that owned him in order to get his freedom. And he becomes a leading abolitionist and fights with, uh, gets his two sons in the Civil War to make sure we get a 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. He was a confidant of Abraham Lincoln. He walked into the White House at one point in time, room full of people. Everybody stops speaking. Lincoln looks at him, turns to the audience and said, this man's judgment I trust more than anyone else. And after Lincoln was assassinated, uh, Douglas wrote, he penned this beautiful uh, tribute uh, to Lincoln, calling him the wisest, most noble man right. on earth. And he truly was. Right. When he got a chance to know him, he was very critical when he was writing on him because he wanted a quick free of his freedom right. of the slaves. But if he did it that quick, white people in the north were not ready to fight side by side with black people at that point. Once the war started and they realized what was going on and what they were fighting for, they said, suit him up. And then Frederick Douglass, Frederick Douglass said, sure, for the same money. Yeah. They're going to get paid the same, and he's going to fight for that, and I'll recruit for you. In fact, my first two people, recruits, are going to be my sons, and they will fight. Right. And, you know, uh, Booker T. Washington, as you well know from your book, carried on the mantle of the fight for economic They met. He spoke at Tuskegee. Douglas That's spoke at right. Tuskegee. And, uh, you know, in my book is the famous Booker T. Washington Atlanta Compromise speech. Um, which was a bold move. And he went down there and nobody was quite sure what kind of a reception he would get. And he spoke about African-Americans and economic opportunity in the South. Um, And in the end, he was really applauded for that. He advanced economic opportunity uh, and he goes down in history as a great American. Yep. Uh, he had to speak to a black audience and a white audience yep. of all different wealth uh, with all these significant people on the stage. He's the only man of color. And he blew the doors off everybody. Yeah, he truly did. Uh, thanks so much, Greg. Great to see you. Um, go pick up his book, The United States. It's called The Constitution of the United States and Other Patriotic Documents. And, Greg, do you have a special place you want us to go? Uh, you can just uh, go to Amazon.com or HarperCollins.com or just walk in any bookstore across America. The book came out yesterday. Awesome. I'm very, very proud of you this. should be. Uh, it, it is a tribute to patriots everywhere. Right. If you're worried about your son or daughter not, under, not understanding our past, this is one-stop shopping. Thanks so much, right. Brian. Go get him, Greg. And we'll have you back, too, because I uh, believe it or not, there's a lot of legal stuff in the news. <laughs> you think? Yeah. Rich Larry at the bottom of the hour. You're next. Brian Kilmeade Show. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. 
Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Tweeted at me one, two, three, four, five times. And let me read what the last one said. Um, It said, greedy CEO who pretends like he's self-made. What a clown. Fraud. Always has been. Always will be. Quit the tough guy act in these Senate hearings. You know where to find me. Any place, any time, cowboy. Sir, this is a time, this is a place. You want to run your mouth? We can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, stop it. So that was Sean, excuse me, Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma. Uh, and he is sparring verbally with the president, Sean O'Brien. And it happened yesterday during an exchange. And what McMullen was reading, you know, Mullen was reading, was text from this guy, O'Brien, because he's a ranking member uh, on the committee, on the budget committee, and just ripping him. And Mullen's sitting there, okay, you, I'm going to get you in front of me, and I'm going to challenge you. And then O'Brien said he was going to get challenged. He was about to get his head kicked in. Have you seen the size of this guy? And did you see that Senator Mullen also spent a great deal of his time in the octagon? The guy's a mixed martial arts fighter. And afterwards, he said that there was a time in the Senate where people beat each other up. And he missed that time. He said that on CNN. I thought it was interesting. He said Andrew Jackson knocked somebody out with a cane, uh, also defended himself uh, when he was attacked, when he was in, uh, when he was, uh, in Washington. Here's uh, what he said explaining that a little bit later that night with Sean Hannity, Cut 24. I was like, listen, I'm a guy from Oklahoma first. In Oklahoma, you don't do this. Maybe you run your mouth in New Jersey. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not from New Jersey, but this is some thug. That's a mob boss, and you're supposed to be intimidating because he's the boss of the Teamsters. But, and he's got away with this. He's got suspended by his own, by his own uh, Teamsters before for intimidation. He's been in trouble multiple times. He, he's, he, in 2022, he said he wanted to bring a mob mentality back to the Teamsters. Maybe that's true, but you still aren't going to run your mouth at me and expect me to just sit there. And by the way, mob mentality, that's not a good thing. And by the way, most mobsters, tough guys with guns, right? When you outnumber people and you want to choke them to death from behind. Uh, This is a guy you don't mess with. And it was just one of the many confrontations that took place yesterday. It was extraordinary. I'm going to bring it up with Rich Lowry next. Uh, It is just the beginning. We have so much to cover today as well as the moving events over uh, over in San Francisco. Don't move. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. If you ran on a third-party ticket, wouldn't you be helping to elect Donald Trump? I don't buy that scenario. I've heard that, and and I wouldn't buy that scenario because if you look back in history how things have played out, I don't think they thought Ross Perot would elect Bill Clinton. Now that we see this, some polls with the, uh, with Bobby Kennedy Jr. would be helping uh will be helping uh, Joe Biden because it takes votes from Donald Trump. Uh, that is Joe Manchin sitting down with Nora O'Donnell of CBS, not letting his, his big-time plans known. He just did say, I will not run for re-election for another six years in West Virginia. Very red state. He's Democrat. 
And he is, uh, I think he's done some really good things because he was actually makes people earn their vote. He did not want to stack the court. Goodbye. He did not want to add two states. He's not going to do that. And he did sign off on the Inflation Reduction Act. I think that was a mistake. He even realizes that. Well, Jim Justice, very popular, self, uh, uh, self-financing self governor. He's going to be senator. He was recruited by Mitch McConnell. Let's bring in uh, Rich Lowry now, editor of National Review. Rich, the story of this next election, if it's Biden-Trump, might be the other candidates and what they do to the overall race. Yeah. You, know, you look at that New York Times poll that got so much attention about a week or so ago with Trump ahead in five of the six swing states. You add, added in RFK, and, and all of a sudden it wasn't so clear. You know, tr- Trump was tied or losing in a lot of those swing states. So I don't think RFK is going to stay at the level he is now. I mean, in some polls he's 22 percent. Know, I think people learn, learn that he's not just your um, – he's not your standard issue candidate. A lot of them will, will flake off. But there's no labels thing really could happen. Um, there's ballot access issues. There's the issue whether you put a Democrat or Republican on the top of the ticket, which is a big decision. Uh, but there's, there's as, as much an appetite uh, for an independent or third-party candidate since 1992 when Ross Perot got 19% of the vote. So let's say you put Manchin in with Governor Huntsman or Governor Hogan. Now, they're not, neither one's a darlings of their party. Yep. But how big is the constituency of the undecided independents? And persuadables. I mean, I don't know if we have the answer to that, but we can speculate, correct? Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't wouldn't shock me if such a ticket got double digits. You know, they're not going to win in any state, but it it makes some states you wouldn't otherwise expect to be competitive competitive and and scrambles things. And if if I'm a Democrat, I'm freaked out about the prospect of a, of a, a Joe Manchin ticket, you know, with with uh, with a Democrat on top of the of the ticket. And if I'm the Trump folks, I'm same thing if, if it's Larry Hogan. Um, so it's going to be a wild and unpredictable year. The Republican primary so far has been basically a sizzle, but uh, we'll make up for it, I believe, with a lot of drama next year. We have a lot to discuss. But just to finish off this topic, if we, we remember Ralph Nader, how he hurt that, how, according to Al Gore, he hurt him in Florida. Uh, we remember how Jill Stein, Hillary Clinton thinks, was a plant uh, to hurt her, and she thinks she lost the election. First, she blames uh, Russians, and then Trump's illegitimate, and it, it, Jill Stein. But now if you put in Cornell West, you put in a possible mm-hmm. no-labels ticket, you put in the RFK ticket. So you have a lot of fractures. Now, people listening to us right now say, I probably don't have any friends that would vote for them. But in a country with 100 million people who are probably eligible to vote or two or 150 – you got to think someone's going to go. Yeah, Cornell West. Okay, one out of five. One out of five, fifty thousand. Well, you know, in certain states, it'll flip. It is so close in Arizona, in Georgia, yep. in Michigan, uh, possibly in Wisconsin. Yeah, I mean, what do you need to change those states, right, from the 2020 result? One or two percent in a lot of cases. So uh, can can all those people you just mentioned get one or two percent easily? Easily. So it is definitely a scramble thing. And it just goes to I think both parties are taking a big risk with their presumptive nominees. I've been saying for a long time that Trump could win a general election, but he also easily could win, lose a general election to Joe Biden, you know, who's in totally pathetic state. And same thing with Biden. I think Biden, besides Kamala Harris, is, is probably the only major Democrat that uh, uh, could lose to Trump. Um, so if, if either party would switch away, I think they'd have a, a pretty big advantage, but it doesn't, doesn't seem likely that. It's going to happen. All right, so let's let's talk about uh, who's left, and it is Nikki Haley, DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, as well as Governor Christie, 
technically Governor Bergram, uh, but Tim Scott's gone. Mike Pence is gone. If the if you were to pick a survivor, who is best to challenge Trump and who is it likely to be? I still think it's DeSantis, uh, even though you know he's done nothing but fall and uh, flatline. But he has the the broadest possible appeal in the party. One, two, he has the I think the best chance in Iowa. When I really think if Trump's going to be stopped, it has to. It has to happen in Iowa. I think it's probably, you know, a uh, a racehorse out of the barn if he wins wins in Iowa. So I'd still say DeSantis. But the problem is he's not rising, and Haley is rising. There was an Emerson poll yesterday in New Hampshire that had Haley up 14 points since August. Now, still not a huge number, but 18 percent. And then Christie was sitting at another nine or so. If if you were to drop, you know, that presumably would accrue to her. So you can squint and begin to see how she'd be competitive uh, in New. Hampshire, where whereas DeSantis has shown no sign of pickup anywhere. I think the one thing that I, I find stunning, a couple of things. Number one, head-to-head in, a sw- in one poll that just popped out, Trump beats, to, beats Gavin Newsom. Then we mentioned the CNN poll and the New York Times poll, the Trump beats uh, Biden in almost every battleground state, and he yep. beats on almost every issue. Yeah. So immediately, Rich, and you could spot this better than most, you have to make him unelectable. Yep. So and Trump didn't, you know, didn't make it that hard, but he came out with a speech. He talked for an hour and a half and they found one line and they said Hitler, Hillary yeah. Clinton. He's Hitler. You know, he's Mussolini and Hitler. Right. Yeah. He's absolutely. <laughs> so and then we're going to kick him off the ballot. We're going to put him in court. We're going to take yeah. away his wealth. I mean, yeah. this is so obvious. Then they're going to say 77 years old. He's making a lot of gaffes, just like Joe Biden. Yeah. OK, guys, you're giving me your your bet, your hook. Your uppercut in the, in the first round. You know yeah. this is going to go 15 rounds. So what are you doing? How effective will this be? Are we going to be numb to the Hitler references by August? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't think you should call domestic opponents vermin. It, it just goes too far. But it doesn't mean you're Hitler either. I mean, the, the reason why I remember Hitler is not because he, he called uh, people vermin, right? It's because everything he did uh, um, besides that. So I think that's absurd. But it does show there, there a lot of wild things Trump has said on true social art rallies that haven't gotten a lot of attention, I don't know, for like a year now. And all of a sudden, the spotlight's going to turn back on. So uh, you, you're right. This is part of the strategy. And then also, three, it's a Amazing. Three of the the felony charge cases they want to try in March. What, what's magic about March? Is March just good for trials the way June is for weddings? No, it's because they assume he'll have the nomination locked up, and then they can start making him unacceptable. They hope in a general election. Now they're not going to get all three trials in March. Maybe they get no trials in March. If they do get one, I think it will be the January sixth trial. But it's pretty it's pretty blatant uh, what they're doing. And my guess is, who knows? I mean, if he's convicted of felony. We're, we're, you know, we passed an event horizon. I don't think anyone can really predict, but I wouldn't be shocked if, you know, for three weeks it's a torpedo to the bow, the polling collapses, you know, like Access Hollywood, and then it's absorbed. You know, we get used to it. The news cycle moves on, and then people care about the things they always care about, the economy and, and foreign affairs and real issues. And as you mentioned earlier, Trump leads on all of those except for abortion. So the, one of the big stories this week, as Joe Biden heads out for a consequential Uh, a few hours with the president of China. Uh, Even Biden's staff thinks he's too old to campaign, too old to govern. They're coming up with a plan B and C. They have people with different specialties from the Congressional Black Caucus to get the black vote back together to Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton for helping him out with the Middle East. 
Uh, they want a special envoy, George Missile style, to handle Ukraine. They want somebody else to really campaign for them. They've enlisted the governor of Illinois as well as Gavin Newsom and uh, bring back Rahm Emanuel as ambassador to Japan. Jonathan Martin writes his column offering advice at the same time because clearly he wants to uh, make sure Donald Trump doesn't win. What are your thoughts about the way the party has turned on Biden and he refuses to step aside? Well, they haven't really turned on him, right? I mean, privately, they all know the problem, uh, and they acknowledge it. They can see everything we see every day with how decrepit this guy is. But they, they don't think there's an alternative because Kamala's waiting there in the wings. And even if they wanted him to go, there's no mechanism to, to make him go. So they're kind of stuck, and they're going to make the, the best of it. But it's just – I'm, I'm good friends with Jonathan Martin. He's a good, good journalist. The, the paragraph that mattered in that column was everyone realizes he doesn't have the capacity to campaign or serve as president the way a traditional candidate or president would. That's just there's there's no getting around to the job. He should step aside. He should step aside. If you're not up for the job, you should step aside. And if he gets reelected, it guarantees some sort of terrible crisis. He's not going to be able to serve out four years when presidents are you know incapacitated. It, it, it it's not a clean process. There's usually deception involved, and you know it, it's going to be terrible. And they have any number of better alternatives, but because they're they can't leverage him out and are worried about Kamala. They're just going to try to ride this thing out. It's bad for their party. It's bad for the country. It is terrible for the country. And and, and I, I totally mean that. And it's terrible right now. I mean, do you, does anyone feel confident that he's going to get a good right. deal from President Xi? Does anyone yeah. feel confident? And I'll give you an example. And I think it's effective even for Democrats. If George W. Bush ended up being incompetent, you had Cohen Powell, Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, off the top of your head, solid secretary of the Treasury. So Trump, you know, the, the 40-something-year-old governor of Texas could look around and go, I'm sur- uh, Condoleezza Rice, I'm surrounded by competence and experience, mm-hmm. right? you got people like Jim Baker and his dad he could reach to. I look around at the Biden team. I only see weakness. Did anyone look at Jake mm-hmm. Sullivan and go, oh, he can handle this? Uh, yep. uh, Governor, excuse me, Secretary of State Blinken and think he's going to be able to uh, stand strong in the Middle East and in Ukraine. I mean, our Secretary of Defense, I have no idea what he thinks. Clearly, he's risk adverse. As a general on the ground in uh, Ukraine, I know he's seen more death and destruction than, than I ever will or you. But he, being this risk adverse is putting our guys in so much danger. So I assume he has no control. My problem is if the president can't do it, he's not surrounded by people that make me feel they can do it. Yeah, and and even if the people around him were better, there's no substitute for a president. And this is such an enormous job with such high pressure. You, you can be at the top of your game and a world-class politician, and it, and it can break you. The presidency broke LBJ, you know, who's a fantastic politician. It broke Nixon. I mean, he had uh, something to do with that, obviously. It broke Jimmy Carter. You know, George W. Bush, by the end, was, was near broken by it. So the idea we're going to have this 81-year-old guy who clearly is, is – 
out of it at some level, right? The latest example was Veterans Day, Tomb of the Unknown. If, if someone's not whispering in his ear exactly what to do, he, he doesn't know what to do. And, and, and he has the most crushing responsibilities of any man on the planet. That's not a good combination. I don't care. You know, you could bring back Henry Kissinger as, as Secretary of, of State and Teddy Roosevelt as, as the Defense Secretary or whatever, and it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't work because he got that hole, hole in the middle. And they're going to try to make it work because they have to. They're going to gaslight the whole country. But one way or the other, it's going to end badly. So uh, what do you think is going to happen in San Francisco? The president wants uh, both, uh, both countries to commit to renewables, although China is not going to back off on coal. They want them to uh, agree to crack down on the, uh, on the origins uh, of fentanyl and cut, and cut back on that. Uh, let's see how that goes. What else do you think is going to be accomplished in this meeting? Well, we'll see, you know, what the readout is. I'm not sure whether I'll believe it on how tough Biden is on um, human rights and, and various uh, misconduct by the Chinese regime. As Reagan showed in his negotiations with the Soviets, you, you can both make progress diplomatically and not back down on that stuff and be really, really tough on it as part of your actually negotiating uh, leverage and moral authority as president of the United States. But Biden hasn't really used it to this point. I kind of doubt he'll use it there. And the, the big thing is, it seemed after Trump there was a bipartisan consensus that we were, needed a totally new approach to China that was not engagement, that was competition. And for the last year or so, it seems that Biden wants to go back to, to what was a, a failed status quo engaging China. So I, I think that's, that's the, the big picture and the big risk. Rich uh, Lowry, uh, Pick Up National Review. Appreciate it, Rich. Thanks so much, Brian. Have a great day. You got it. And when we come back, uh, I'm going to take your calls and finish up this hour with your input. We are watching everything taking place on the West Coast. 21 world leaders have uh, landed in San Francisco. We're following everything with the Trump trial, too, that's taking place in New York City. And we're seeing the ongoing situation in Israel as uh, the U.S. independent study has revealed what we all knew, that in that hospital, underneath the hospital, the number one hospital that's left in Gaza, are network tunnels that probably have the, head, uh, the higher-ups in Hamas, the ones that are still alive. And there's a deal on the table, we understand, to get 70 hostages out for a, for a five-day ceasefire. Would you take it? Brian Kilmeade Show. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Yeah, all Shifa Hospital is a military command uh, infrastructure. Uh, they put in a innocent civilians, hostages, human shields. Um, they, they bury them within the hospital. And then tunnels, 500 miles of tunnels. <clears throat> I was just in Israel, just got back, met with Prime Minister Netanyahu, talked about this very issue. They are taking this very delicately, trying to save civilian lives as they circle Gaza City, have a humanitarian corridor through the barrier they have created into southern Gaza. But it shows what cowards uh, really Hamas are to use their own people and the hostages as human shields. It, well, that's uh, Michael McCall. He's chairman of foreign relations in the House. He's 100 percent right. And what he also what he didn't bring up is they're bringing incubators in. Uh, they're bringing generators in. I mean, how many countries get attacked like they got attacked? 1,400 people dead. There's Hamas in the basement, and they're making sure the kids are okay. Yes, there's collateral damage, and there's some tragedy. Yes. And you have to understand, too, 
that when you're attacked to that level and know it's going to happen again, and the people that did it say we're going to do it again and again and again, you have no choice as prime minister of that country, as head of, of the secretary of defense of that country, uh, defense minister, you go in there and you go for the win and you go for the kill. What people don't understand about that is beyond me. And what they did is they wanted this fight. I don't think Hamas wants to run Gaza. They don't want to be a governing body. They don't want responsibility, but they scare the hell out of everybody. There is uh, a tape on, uh, on Jerusalem Post, and it shows a hospital, and I believe it's the same hospital. And one man walks up to Al Jazeera's ca- cameras, and he's being interviewed, and he says through a translator, he says, this is Hamas. How dare they hide behind us? They hide behind us. Tell them to go out and fight. And as he's saying this, the Al Jazeera reporter pulls away and walks the other direction. I've seen biased media before, but I've never seen anything quite like this ever. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if someone, uh, even on MSNBC, is out in the field and the guy goes, you know, I blame Joe Biden for the inflation and I blame Joe Biden for the chaos in Ukraine and I blame Joe Biden for allowing Jake Sullivan to take his eye off the ball when it comes to uh, Middle East relations and them just walking away in the middle. But that's the story in the Arab world, the Arab street, and, and much of the leadership gets it. The Arab street doesn't, and most of these leaders fear the Arab street. The good news is they're getting near a deal, reportedly, on hostages. Seventy come out for a small select group of Palestinian hostages and a five-day ceasefire. We will see. Because if the fighters get out, we're going to be back in the same place again. Hey, Thanks to everyone who came out to R.J. Julia, the great bookstop shop in uh, Connecticut. I want to see everyone in Tennessee, Brentwood, Tennessee, then over in Alabama over the next few days, and at the Patriot Awards in Nashville. We're wearing Teddy and Booker T. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Uh, we come to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, where it seems as though uh, New York is, might be, and my fingers are crossed, might be getting their footing and push back against anti-Semitism and some of the riots and disturbing things that have happened on the college campuses here, some of the, the uh, highest ranked in the country, if not the best. Uh, Senator Ron Johnson is going to be with us shortly. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West at the bottom of the hour. Emily Austin, fresh off her, her appearance, uh, speaking at the at the rally for Israel yesterday where 300,000 people uh, showed up. It was really amazing to see. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Are you thinking about running for president? I don't know what the future lies. I know that we can't continue the direction we're going. People feel politically homeless. I feel politically homeless. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes, he does. 2024, Joe Manchin has his presidential minute. Will he make it a summer? Will he make a run? Few and fewer Dems show confidence in Joe. And new polls have Trump even beating Newsom head to head. Number two. Major escalation there as well in Gaza as the IDF presses forward, entering now the Al-Shifa hospital. This is the largest hospital in Gaza where the IDF says today it was able to find weapons, ammunitions, and more military infrastructure inside that hospital. That is something that we've heard from the Pentagon this week. 
Wow. Uh, Israel at war. 300,000 show up in D.C. to show support for the nation under attack as forces get closer to Hamas headquarters under a hospital in Gaza. Number one. How would you define success with your meeting with President Xi? To get back on a normal course of corresponding, being able to pick up a phone and talk to one another if there's a crisis, being able to make sure our military still have contact with one another. We're not trying to decouple from China. Yes, we should be, though. Uh, the best we can, if uh, if it's not indeed possible, I'd like to start pushing away. Is that possible? First time in six years, President Xi comes to America. This time to meet with President Biden. Expectations are low. The risks are high. What do you expect to come from the meetings? And I'll pose that right to Senator Ron Johnson uh, on Homeland Security Committees, Budget Committees, and a, a major uh, investigator in his own right and successful businessman in his day. Uh, Senator Johnson, what do you expect to emerge from San Francisco? Good morning, Brian. Uh, probably just more weakness, more fecklessness. I, I, I was listening to your opening, and you say never sowing division. Uh, I used to say the greatest threat facing this nation, and we're still not addressing, is our debt and deficit. But right now, the fact that we are divided is weakening this country. And you know, I also point out we're not a naturally divided people. You know, on the main, major goals in life, we, we agree. You know, safety, security, ra- raising our kids. Uh, but you have people like President Biden. The, the, the radical left, the Democrat Party, they're pushing division, they're pushing hate, that are weakening this country. So you know, the, the overall macro solution here is we need to strengthen America. We need to unify and heal this nation. We need to get our debt and deficit under control. We need to secure our border. Uh, we need to you know, do everything we can to, uh, again, strengthen this nation, because that is what, when America is weak, the world's a far more dangerous place, and uh, tyrants like she. You know, totalitarians uh, like like Putin and the the, most, the Ayatollahs, they become emboldened and the world becomes a far more dangerous place. Well, not according to the president. He says there's a different danger. Cut five. We have to keep going. Above all, it shows us that climate action offers an opportunity for the nation to come together and do some really big things. You know, I've seen firsthand what the reports make clear. The devastating toll of climate change and its existential threat to all of us and is the ultimate threat to humanity, climate change. So that's all he talks about. Six billion dollars towards climate change. Never talks about getting the deficit in order. Never talks about rating and spending. He's upset he's not spending more. That's the devastating impact of climate change is is their fantasy that they can hold back the tides In, in Senate budget testimony in hearings. We spent something like five to six trillion dollars globally to combat climate change. I mean, I asked the witnesses, well, have we made a dent? Have we turned down the curb? Of course not, because we're still, this world's still going to end apparently in 12 years. So this is wasted money. Can you imagine what we could have done with five or six trillion dollars to alleviate human suffering? To, to meet, to meet the, you know, net zero by 2050 is going to be another 21 trillion dollars. Again, this is, this is absurd. It is insane. It's further weakening this country. When you realize the fact that we're $33.5 trillion in debt, that is a weakened America. And there's no end in sight on that. So, again, the existential threat to America is our debt and deficit, uh, our weakness, and rising powers that are taking advantage of our weakness. Uh, Senator Ron Johnson, our guest. Senator, we understand that uh, they are going to agree on the precursors to fentanyl, limit them. I don't know what kind of enforcement tools we're going to use. We're also going to agree to set up communications between defense uh, secretaries and defense divisions. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But this is what I'm just trying to get a hold of. Now, this just crossed. 
President Biden is set to strike a deal with China that would limit the use of AI in nuclear weapons. He's going to meet with President Xi uh, on today and going to agree to that. According to report, Biden and Xi will agree to limit the use in the systems. But the U.S. Uh, US military claims they need AI for their vehicles and weapon systems to remain superior as a global force. So, listen, I am not sophisticated enough to know where AI is leading. I don't know many people that have. I know people that are smart enough to ask the right questions, but I am not comfortable with this 81-year-old president giving up this this type of advantage. Well, first of all, does anybody really believe that China will honor any agreement it signs no. with us? No. I mean, let's face it. They're, they're the ones who come over, have a highly sophisticated web of agents that steal our intellectual property. That's one of the reasons they've made such a progress economically, because they steal our stuff. So we, you can't trust China to do this. Listen, I, I, I am concerned about uh, what's going to happen with AI. Nobody, nobody knows. Nobody knows where this goes. But doing a deal with China and hamstring ourselves, by the way, I'm not, I'm not sure we'd even honor the agreement as well. So, I mean, these, these agreements are, again, just fantasy. That's part of the problem with liberalism. They just deny reality. Uh, they think they can do things that just are simply impossible to achieve. What we should do is achieve, you know, the, the possible, which is get our debt and deficit under control. Do whatever we can to unify and heal this country rather than continue to divide it and push hate. But that's what the Democrats are doing. You're a business guy. And, you know, for the longest time, the, the theory in America was do business with China, get them into the WTO, and they'll see the advantages of being a part of the family of nations and eventually lose the guise of communism. That has not worked. Even Henry Kissinger at 100 admits it has not worked. However, there is a uh, there's a lot of business still being done by American business over there. Today, uh, President Xi will have dinner with anyone who wants to spend $2,000 to be in the same room with him and 40000 to be in the same, on the same table as him. How do you feel about American businessmen and women trying to do business and get close to President Xi? Well, first of all, you know, I wish people would have been right 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and we opened up to China. I wish they would have accepted our outstretched hand and entered the world economy and brought their people out of poverty, which they've done, and, and entered the world and played by the rules. But they didn't do that. So you have to recognize that reality. You know, what American businesses need to do is they certainly need to diversify the, their supply chain. Uh, it's not about bringing everything back to America. We already have a severe worker shortage here, but it's definitely uh, reducing our dependence on China and not kowtowing to them, recognizing what China is. It's a totalitarian regime. It, it violates the human rights of its own people. Uh, you, gotta, you have to have an open eye toward who it is you're dealing with. Right. Uh, that would certainly help. And we also know that as late as last month, they were buzzing our B-52 bombers. You know, over the last few months, they've been trying to interdict our ships and harassing our allies in the region while threatening Taiwan on a regular basis as well as propping up Russia, selling everything except weapons. But the components to make the weapons to let that fight continue against Ukraine exists. Uh, we know that they have not a legal, uh, not a violation, but they have an outstretched hand to Saudi Arabia to try to pry them away from us as an ally in the region. This is We don't address the spy balloon. We can never be on our back foot with this country and have success. And I worry this president in desperate need of a success will uh, we'll acquiesce in a way that hurts our security. Well, it was President Obama's Defense Secretary Robert Gates said that uh, President Biden's been wrong on every major foreign policy decision for the last 40 years. 
and his string remains unbroken. I mean, he's got the same exact advisors who've been advising him for four years as well. So, again, when you have the Obama administration and the Biden administration appease and funnel hundreds of billions of dollars into the largest state-sponsored terror, Iran, China notices that. They notice our weakness. They notice our debt. They notice our open borders. They notice the division. And so we embolden our enemies. So, again, the solution here is we need to strengthen America. But it's not going to happen under radical leftists because they apparently seem hell-bent mm-hmm. on destroying this country, and they're doing a really good job of it. You tweeted out that Joe Biden's performance as president is so awful that I think they'll cast him aside. Do you, I mean, you, you, you know the sentiment, but then within practicality, is it possible? Yeah, but first of all, it's not that his performance is bad because they're all signed up to his policies. It's that his poll numbers are bad. But, you know, obviously what's driving his poll numbers is his performance. But they're all radical leftists. They're, they're totally on board with his policies. They're not willing to admit they don't, simply don't work. But, no, I think his poll numbers are so awful. The Democrats are, are really good at, you know, being unified in their acquisition and maintenance of power. So I just have, a, just have my doubts that uh, they're going like, to let him be the nominee. And, no, I think they'll just pull out of the hat during the convention. They have all these superdelegates. You know, they, they don't really play by the rules. They'll, they'll make the rules up as they go, and they get away with it. You know, they, they've done it time and time again in elections. I remember one Senate uh, election in, uh, in New Jersey where you know, their candidate was, became convicted felon, and they violated all the rules and elected another Democrat. So they're perfectly capable of doing that, and I think that's exactly what they'll do. Um, i got to just bring you to the Senate. You guys are so close to getting the majority. If you break it down, it looks like justice is going to just waltz in uh, Jim Justice, the governor, as an ex-senator, as Manchin just calls it a day. Out in Montana, Tim Sheehy, a special operator, taking on John Tester, a pretend moderate. You would think he's more than susceptible. There's also people optimistic, if you pick the right candidate, that you could oust uh, Brown in Ohio. As you look at this map, how much would it mean to you, your job, and your party to be in the majority? How much more could you do? Well, first, we, we could stop if, you know, horror of horrors, we elect another Democrat president, we could stop his agenda, which is crucial. Uh, we can make sure that Democrats uh, don't destroy the filibuster and destroy the Senate. For me personally, I've become chairman of the permanent subcommittee investigations, and I've laid the foundation for all kinds of investigations to hold uh, the administration, these bureaucrats, uh, accountable. So it, it means a lot. You know, in order for us to do that, though, our current Republican leadership needs to stop uh, taking what a unified Democrat position is and finding just nine Republicans to join them to pass their priorities. We, we need to unify a Republican position, and it has to start on the border. Right now, our open border is a clear and present danger to America. We have an opportunity because the Biden administration wants funding for our Ukraine to make Ukraine funding contingent on true border security metrics. In other words, yeah, we need to pass the laws. We need to change our our current laws to put the things in place to secure the border. But because we have a lawless administration, a president who wants open borders, the only way we should uh, allow cloture on any bill to secure the border is if there are strong metrics that they have to meet in order to get the funding over 12 months. That would be great. Uh, are you calling for Mitch McConnell to step aside? I mean, is that a fait accompli? Obviously, he's got physical ailments, and he's getting up there in age, and you got um, you have Senator Thune waiting in the wings, perhaps? Well, I certainly was part of the group that uh, voted for Tim Scott, the leader, at the start of this Congress. Uh, right now, I'm looking for a different form of governance where, again, where we stop 
taking the Democrat position, finding just enough Republicans to join them, and instead find out what the Republican position is on things the public demand. And the number one thing the public demands because they realize an open border is a clear and present danger is Republicans create a red line. We must pass border security tied to Ukraine funding. It has to be contingent on meeting the benchmarks of actually securing our border. By the way, it's possible. President Trump in 12 months from his went from his peak to his trough in terms of illegal, illegal entries because he had the right policies. We just need to enact them and force President Biden to, to follow the law. Uh, I just lastly, I know a lot of Republicans are hedging on Ukraine. Uh, it is estimated that Russians have lost 300,000 soldiers. There's a story today in The Sun that says 15 percent of all of them are on some type of lethal drugs. They don't want to fight, and the Ukrainians are fighting like warriors. Do you think it's time to abandon Ukraine? No. And, and again, what, what I'm saying— You've been there Ukraine early, funding, too. You've been there early and often. Well, again, but, but I also recognize that this is a, a bloody stalemate, and it's got to end sooner or later. Putin won't lose. I mean, his troops may be demoralized, but he has nuclear weapons. So we have to recognize that reality. But what, what I'm saying is we have this opportunity— for America, the clear and present danger is our open border, and we have to take that opportunity. We, we don't have any yeah. other way Use of, of being administration to secure the border. We have to do that. Understood. Senator Ron Johnson, thanks so much. Appreciate it. All right. Uh, when we come back, uh, we'll, we'll talk more about this as well as uh, other breaking news having to do with uh, Israel and the hostages. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on the Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. It's come out in the public that you also do business with your brother with potential loans. You retweeted that story. Completely false. I've never loaned my brother one penny. You're so financially illiterate, you and Goldman, who is Mr. Trust Fund, continue to try for, for to claim, for claiming my time. No, I'm for, not going to give you your time back. You all continue to, you look like a smurf here just going around and all this stuff. Now, listen. Mr. Chairman, you no, have. No, I'm going to tell you no, no, something. Hold on. If You've already been proven a liar, Mr. Moskowitz. What's that? You've already been proven a liar. Who's that. proven me a liar? You? Yes. So what they're trying to say is that Comer inherited a whole bunch of money and he gave it to his brother. What he did is his brother got inherited the farm. He fronted his brother the money to actually take the farm after his parents died. Number two, there are no uh, there are no uh, uh, bank accounts that without a name on them. They, they're all about deflecting from Hunter Biden and Joe Biden and the payment and saying there's no big deal. It's no big deal that two hundred thousand dollars go from one brother to the next. Well, what was the loan? What was it for? Well, he was in the private sector. Shouldn't we not know if you're doing deals with your son and your brother with China, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, everywhere? Why is that not relevant, let alone what you set up when you were vice president, let alone senator? And there's also a report that we ran this morning that right after the midterm elections, guys were sent over to the lawyer's office in Boston to pick up certain documents and being very careful and discreet in doing it. I assume this was a a FOIA request, but it is now exposed. Why are people picking up highly sensitive documents in Boston as it relates to Joe Biden? 
We don't hear anything about the Biden investigation, the two interviews in the Oval Office. We don't hear anything about what was on the floor in the Corvette as it relates to anything to do with Hunter's business. We don't hear about how the University of Pennsylvania boxes got there. We hear every detail of what pool boy walked by documents at Mar-a-Lago. And I am not somebody who thinks it was a good idea for the president to take all these boxes. But I am somebody that is shocked at the end of a presidency dating back to the turn of the previous century, that there isn't a system in place where you go through with archives or FBI agents to say what can go and what can't go. I mean, do you? does anyone feel good about that? Trump put those boxes in front view and said, put them on the chopper. I'm out of here. Wasn't hiding it. But then they wanted it back. And now it's a mess. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Kevin McCarthy walked by and he elbowed me in the kidneys as he walked by. Felt, Felt it was on purpose and not an accident. Oh, accident. 100% on purpose, man. What are the chances? Did you elbow him? Okay. No, I did not elbow him. No, I would not elbow him. I would not hit him in a kidney. I guess our elbow sit as I walked by. I didn't punch anybody. So that was... Uh... Literally exchange with the Tennessee congressman who voted against Kevin McCarthy and helped uh, lead to his ouster. He claims that Kevin McCarthy hit him in the kidney. Now, uh, I don't blame McCarthy if he hit him, but he says he didn't hit him. A uh, reporter was there, didn't really see it. That was only audio. So even if you could see it, we couldn't show it. So this guy complained all night. He hopped on CNN. Uh, McCarthy, they end up cutting a deal that McCarthy was worse than the one McCarthy cut. And it got him fired, even though 96% of the people wanted him to stay as speaker. Ron Johnson put up a two-tiered CR, had no spending cuts. He lost, um, I think, 53 or 63 Republican votes. Doesn't matter. We're moving on. And I'm glad we're moving on. But if you're Kevin McCarthy, you're furious. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West is here. Colonel, did this stuff ever happen when you were in the House? No, we, you know, we were a little bit more uh, mature, I'd say. I mean, there were some sophomore things, but nothing like this going on. But when you look at what was just passed last night, this stopgap measure to continue on with the government functioning, it just makes you believe that the whole thing with Kevin McCarthy was not so much about policy, it was not so much about principles, about personalities. Uh, because, like you said, what got passed last night was far worse than what uh, McCarthy was bringing forward that did have some type of spending rescissions and things of this nature. So why was that not acceptable? So, And now we've got this back and forth about he, you know, sucker punched me in the kidneys, all this type of stuff. Uh, and then you had the confrontation with uh, Senator Mark Wayne Mullen with the uh, – the uh, the I guess the union car union chief over there UAW chief, it really is getting you know very disturbing how uh, we see them carrying themselves up there in the house and the senate a little bit. So yeah, the screaming in the hall with uh, the disgraced Congressman Santos, uh, disgraced Congressman yelling at other congressmen who are having a problem with him. Obviously, he's a mess and an embarrassment. He's got probably going to be only be there a couple more days. So uh, out of New York. You see a lot of that, and then you see them attacking Comer personally because he's pursuing yeah. the the Biden story. And he said, well, yeah. your brother lent your money, and he just he said, I'm going to cede your time. Explain yourself. And Comer went on to say, CNN, you tried to give CNN that story. They would not take it, so you throw it out at a hearing. 
and uh, called him a Smurf or whatever. Moskowitz is walking around heckling Comer, but Comer's the one doing the investigating, and I think in a very deliberate way, a whole bunch of subpoenas are going to be flying around. Those whistleblowers really uh, are hard to refute, so let's go after the guy. It would be tough. Colonel, yeah. what, would, what would you do? As a guy that could crush 99% of the people in Washington personally, physically, <laughs> what would you do if a guy keeps calling you out like that? Well, you know, I always have this saying, never allow irrelevant people to cause you consternation. So I don't take the bait. Uh, and, and I think that that really shows that that person is, is petty and below you and is, uh, is, is not someone that deserves your attention. If, if you're operating on truth, if you're operating on facts, and you're focused on rectifying the situations that this country is confronting, and, and we have a whole plethora of things that need to be dealt with in this country. I mean, in a few hours, Joe Biden's going to sit down with our number one geopolitical foe in Xi Jinping in China, and he's probably going to give him everything he wants. So that's what people should be focused on. And and let these, you know, little gnats uh, fly around, but uh, you just swat them away if they get too close. But otherwise, don't pay attention to them. So I guess that uh, I'm watching some other channels this morning to get even more context about these confrontations, and there was about five of them yesterday. And, yeah, and they Thomas said, Massey and Jamal Bowman was another one, I think. Yeah, and uh, Bowman was somebody who spends a lot of his time pulling fire alarms. Also, yeah. he spends more of his time uh, going uh, supporting the Palestinians, demanding a ceasefire, and then going to bat because there was slavery in America. And how dare you censure uh, Tlaib for going after uh, the president of the United States and threatening his our own president. So it's just crazy time. But they blame Trump. Trump is the one who started all this. Yeah, it's amazing to me that, you know, during the period of Donald Trump, when he said that he was going to move the American embassy from Tel Aviv up to Jerusalem and all the threats from the Islamic jihadists and terrorist groups, nothing happened. Uh, you know that Vladimir Putin was pretty much so kept in a box, and he killed some 200 uh, Russian paramilitaries of the Wagner Group in Syria during the bombing attack. Uh, nothing, nothing came of that. So the world was a much more peaceful and quiet place. We didn't have to worry about millions of people coming across the border illegally. But Trump seems to be the, you know, the the whipping boy. And I don't think that that fervor and uh, what they're trying to do is is to make him seem as that he is the pariah. I don't think that's going to work. And and I think that people look at Joe Biden and say, I can't afford my gas prices. The border is a mess. I can't afford going to the grocery store. Uh, crime is all over the place. I've got, you know, Palestinian uh, uh, Hamas supporters ripping down American flags on Veterans Day. Something is, is not going right in this country right now. I know, uh, but it's all fixable. And I'm, I'm, I thoroughly believe that. Just the right time at the right leadership. Got to get our debt yes. down, and we got to build up our defense again, but it's all fixable. Uh, but there's so much at stake. Just the last thing before we move on, I want you to hear from Chris Bedford. He has his own theory. He's with the executive director, editor of Common Sense Society. Cut 28. They've been fighting over who's going to be the speaker, which seemed like for weeks. Now they've got another budget fight, or at least they did until earlier today in the House of Representatives. Twitter, does, turns out, doesn't just make... Uh, everyone worse off. It makes uh, senators and congressmen worse for people as well by just focusing all that negativity. But honestly, it did kind of remind me a little bit of the tough guys in high school and college who would yell, come at me, bro, but never actually throw a punch. There was none of that going on, just a lot of accusations and a lot of posturing. And, you know, I get the frustration. In, in Washington, D.C., things can be annoying, but 
it's not a very impressive show at the end of the day. Yeah, it just overall, it was just nuts. I couldn't even keep up with it. And I, I think it's one of those times that you'll, you'll always remember. Maybe things had to get terrible before they get better. So we understand with the meeting with the president of the United States and the president of China, first time the Chinese president's been here in six years, they're going to agree on focusing on renewables, agree on attacking the precursors of fentanyl in their country, agree not to put AI in their weaponry, which evidently, according to experts, is something we should never agree on. And then they're going to, uh, I guess, uh, call it a day because and also agree to set up communications between the two because we have not been talking to each other. No apology for COVID, no accountability there, no apology even for the spy balloon, no sense of stopping uh, fortifying Russia and Iran, let alone what they're doing in North Korea. Your thoughts about this summit? Well, no uh, explanation for the, uh, you know, tens of thousands of Chinese single military age males that have made their way into this country or these police stations. So it goes on and on. I think this is just another sham. I think Joe Biden is going to come off and look very weak. As a matter of fact, Xi Jinping is not going to go to the dinner with the leaders tonight. He's going to be meeting with CEOs and business leaders. Why? Because he is going to try to get more investment in China when we should be decoupling ourselves and business investment uh, into China. We should get our supply chain, especially medical supply chain, out of China. Uh, China is our number one geopolitical foe. And what they have tried to do is surpass us economically, which those uh, economic benefits are just going to fuel their military rise. I mean, you just look at that one belt, one road strategy, and it tells you exactly what Xi Jinping's plan is. And they're supporting uh, Russia. They're supporting Iran. They're supporting North Korea. And there are reports that you see Chinese uh, weaponry and equipment being found in in Gaza Strip. So that's where we need to have that strong stance. But Joe Biden is not the, the type of strong, strong leader that we need at this time. Colonel, I understand you had a big speech yesterday. Yeah, I had a great opportunity. I just got back, as a matter of fact. I went down and spoke at the University of Alabama last night about uh, how Democrat policies have adversely affected the black community. And it was just great because, you know, yesterday, uh, November the 14th of 1915 was the day that Booker T. Washington passed. And so I told the story to the students Many of these students there at the University of Alabama had never been to Tuskegee, and I showed them his autobiography, and I talked about his education, entrepreneurship, and self-reliance uh, policies, George Washington Carver, the, uh, the Tuskegee Airmen. Your book is so needed right now because we have to resurrect and we have to remind people of the greatness of this man that uh, lost his life, sadly, due to uh, high blood pressure. Uh, in 1915 at the age of 59. But think about all he was able to accomplish in that short life period of being one of our greatest orators and educators. Yeah, but he helped other, as you know better than anybody, with that great education that he just willed himself. All he did was try to disperse it to a whole yes. generation of people that's still paying off today. Um, the more I think about his life, it's just so amazing. And so many people in his day saw that greatness and wanted to be a part of it. Andrew Carnegie. Yeah. Uh, Julian Rosenwald, J.P. Morgan, and most of all, uh, McKinley to a degree, Grover Cleveland, but mm-hmm. most of all, Teddy Roosevelt. And when you see these two powerful men coupled together, it was a pretty awesome force. You know, I think you should send a copy of your book to uh, the head of the teachers' unions, Randy Weingartner, and tell him that, you know, this mm-hmm. is how you educate people. I hope so. Uh, thanks so much, Colonel. I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Brian. Emily Austin's a 22-year-old. 
pro-Israeli with a rich uh, Jewish background who is outraged about the anti-Semitic behavior that she's been witnessing and she's been taking it on head to head. She went to the rally yesterday. Uh, What were her thoughts about being with 300 other 300,000 people of like mind? Emily Austin in studio in a moment. Brian Kilmeade show. It's Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hamas's genocidal and anti-Semitic rhetoric isn't just confined to Gaza, as you know. The war in Israel has awakened an alarming amount of anti-Semitism towards Jewish people here in the United States. Hamas brutally attacked Israel on October 7th because Hamas wants to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. So let me be clear. We will never let that happen. So that was Akeem Jeffries. He sounded really good and powerful and sincere. Senator Fetterman, sincere. I looked at uh, Speaker uh, Johnson was fine. Uh, There were a lot of it was bipartisan. And it was such a relief to see something of such consequence go across party lines. But also disturbing that so many Democrats do not buy into that Israel is the victim here. And what they're doing now is necessary for their survival. I don't have to convince Emily Austin of that. She's a, a very respected sports reporter, NBA focus, host of the Hoop Chat, but also an, uh, an outward advocate for Israel and has been speaking out all over the channel and was there yesterday. She's in studio. Emily, how would you characterize it for people that weren't able to go? It was peaceful. It was inspiring. It was beautiful. It was very unifying. There was no aggression, no riots, no protests. It was Literally a bonding experience for Jews from all over the United States and even international. How did they get it together so quick and, and, and be so successful? 300,000. Yes. I, I thought it would be 100,000. So I was pleasantly surprised. I think it's just a time right now where we need each other. Uh, we need to show that we're strong. Listen, we still have 200 plus hostages in Gaza. The situation has not gotten better. I think the media has just started to settle down on the coverage of it a little bit too much. And we we just understood we need to put pressure. We need to show them we're strong in numbers. What struck you out of all the speakers, Deborah Messing was there, out of everyone that was speaking, who were you surprised, number one, that was there, spoke, and maybe their message? I think all of the speakers had their own individual messages. For me, it, it spoke to my heart to hear the hostages' families because we see the faces, right? You see the posters, but you don't know them personally. And to hear a mother cry out for her son, not knowing if he's alive or not, and and crying to our president, do something, bring my son home, he's an American, that really destroyed the crowd. You got about nine, and one of which is a three, nine over there minimum, and you have a three-year-old. Can you imagine the parents of Sass killed, and then they take the three-year-old? What those kids must be thinking now, what must be going through? These kids are going to have lifelong trauma, and these parents are going to have trauma, too. You know, the parents of the hostages yesterday wore sunglasses, and when they took them off, I was backstage. They had bags like raccoons. They're not sleeping. Their children are with terrorists every night. How could they? Right. Now there's a deal in uh, evidently close to in the works where 70 would come out for some Palestinians and a five-day ceasefire. The downside to a ceasefire, Hamas is going to rearm mm-hmm. or escape. Your thoughts on 70 out of 200 getting out? First of all, before anyone's out, there should be proof of life. I don't know at what capacity there has been. I don't know if it's being you know, kept in secret. But right now, there has only been four 
videos of hostages being alive. I think they need some concrete evidence before any ceasefire is even discussed. And I don't think there should be a ceasefire until every single hostage is released. So um, your takeaway there, I, we saw some ugly incidents where 300 uh, Jewish supporters were left on the tarmac at Dulles. When the bus drivers were supposed to pick them up, they found out they were Jewish going to this rally. They refused to come pick them up. So they had to sit in the parking lot the whole time. Do you believe that? I heard it was a thousand, and that sounds you like a, a fat lawsuit to me. Right. I and mean, they I would be imagine because you know the company. The drivers don't show up. Who would ever go with those drivers again? Who would ever go with that company again? Crazy. The other thing to I think it's important is possibly. The worst is over for anti-Semitism. We know it's on up 400 percent. Do you think when you see that NYU students are suing the school, Columbia is kicking off Palestine, two Palestinian groups, uh, much to the praise of Colombian graduates. Do you think people are the Jewish community starting to get their footing and push back with the power and influence they have? I really hope so. They are so far. We need we're very far from the finish line. That's just the truth. We need to not stop putting the pressure. That's the problem. We're all very reactive. We need to start being proactive. And that's how we'll make a change. Would you have a star David that you wear? You said that sometimes you feel you're worried about you. Your family's worried about that. I know the response yesterday was fine. Yeah. What about you worry about when you leave here? I worry about it quite often. I, I'm kind of always looking over my shoulders. Like my dad says, have eyes behind your head. But what worries me more is putting it away because the alternative is hiding. And if we hide, I feel like we're rewinding back to Nazi Germany. And I refuse to let that happen. So I'd rather worry a little bit more about my safety than allow my enemies to persevere with their hate. How are your contacts at Israel in Israel? My, my, like my family members? Yeah. It's it's sad that my cousins who are serving, we don't speak to them often. They're not allowed to. They're afraid of, you know, revealing details for cyber hacks. So we're kind of in the unknown a little bit. And it's worrisome. Of course, I care about them. But as of now, everyone's alive. Thank God. You know, my, my little cousin, she hears sirens all day. Her school is canceled. Now she only goes twice a week. And she's young. She doesn't know what's going on. And it's just it's a life that they're used to. But as an American watching them live through that, I'm like, wow, this is nuts. I also worry that they're between the pandemic and now this when are they going to get a sense of normalcy? In Israel, I, I think that is their normal. Their normalcy is going into bomb shelters. Their normalcy is guys duck rockets, hide under your desks. That is their normalcy, and it's sad. It's sad that they live life that way. Are they do, is Israel doing a better job getting the word out about what they're doing on the offensive? I'm seeing footage now of hospitals with tunnels underneath them, uh, Boy Scout camps with tunnels underneath them, houses with solar panels that have wires going into the ground where tunnels are. Yeah, this is not news. Israel's been saying for years they use civilian homes as human shields. They're using hospitals and nurseries, but nobody was listening enough. Now everyone kind of has their ears a little more open, and Israel is saying, look, this is the photo evidence. Deny it. Uh, and, Brian, people are still denying it. Uh, I know. It's crazy. Emily Austin, if people want to get a hold of you and tell you their stories, where do they go? At Emily.Austin on Instagram, Emily R. Austin on Twitter, and uh, everything else, too. Social media maven. Emily, Social thank media. you. Thank you. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. I really appreciate you being here. Bottom of the hour, uh, Mitch Album will be joining me with his book, certainly be a bestseller. It's called The Little Liar. Really uh, focused around the Holocaust. Uh, special thanks to everybody who came out yesterday in Connecticut. Uh, it was just a great event. And uh, at Julia's bookstore, R.J. Julia bookstore. So to sign Teddy and Booker T, uh, two American icons, 
blazed a path to racial equality. I think it's a message we need to know. We need to know about great Americans who lived and died in their time and made our life better in our time. And I think you'll find that in this story. Go to BrianKilme.com if you want it signed or personalized for the holidays. Or, or you just want to, if you want to see a, a great, what I think is a great show, it's a, doc, it's a look at this whole story. I shot it over the course of a year. It's on Fox Nation right now. Go to Fox Nation, click on Teddy and Booker T, and you'll see the places, hear from the people, uh, some of which uh, knew, knew of the family and, and two of which are uh, descendants of these two great people. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Are you thinking about running for president? I don't know what the future lies. I know that we can't continue the direction we're going. People feel politically homeless. That I feel politically homeless. You do? Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, that, uh, Joe Manchin might be running for president without a home. 2024. Manchin has his presidential minute. Will he make it his campaign? Will he find a running mate, run into no labels, or just go into the distance? Few and fewer Dems are supporting Joe. Could they go to the other Joe? We'll talk about it. While Trump not only beats Biden head-to-head, also beats Gavin Newsom. Number two. Major escalation there as well in Gaza as the IDF presses forward, entering now the Al-Shifa hospital. This is the largest hospital in Gaza where the IDF says today it was able to find weapons, ammunition, and more military infrastructure inside that hospital. That is something that we've heard from the Pentagon this week. Yes, and they've proven it. An independent study has revealed it, and we've confirmed it. It is true. It turns out Hamas hides behind women and children. They hide in hospitals, the basement of mosques, and 300 miles worth of tunnels. I do not know why we need to triple-check this, but it's a fact. As Israel not only looks to take out Hamas, also wheeling in incubators for children. Number one. How would you define success with your meeting with President Xi? To get back on a normal course of corresponding, being able to pick up a phone and talk to one another if there's a crisis, being able to make sure our military still have contact with one another. We're not trying to decouple from China. Really? I really think we should. Uh, first time in six years, President Xi comes to the United States. This time he's meeting with President Biden. Expectations are low. The risks are high. What do you expect and what's really at stake? Here's what I expect. I think that China wants to see Joe Biden reelected, so they're not going to crush him. But what I've seen in their actions with the spy balloon, what I've seen in the actions of Gina Raimondo hacking of her email, what I've seen in their actions, the buzzing of our B-52 within 10 feet of a B-52 in the sky with their fighter jet, what I see when their harassment of the Philippines, which they know is our ally, trying to dominate the South China Sea, not worried about interfering in the Russia-Ukraine war, even though clearly, even though they're tight with Russia, they had no problem with Ukraine. And they know Ukraine did nothing to deserve that. So what could emerge? Here's John Kirby on what, to, on what their approach will be. Cut three. Going into APEC, I mean, the president really feels we've got the wind at our back here. And uh, uh, with 21 countries, 60% of global economic output represented here in San Francisco, it's, uh, it's an exciting time. Let's see if they get anything done, because the exciting thing for President Xi is he's not going to the meetings at night. He's meeting at 2,000 a plate, 40,000 to be at his table with American businessmen and women. More for Kirby on their three objectives. Cut four. He'll be focusing really on three things. One, not only improve and increase American investment in the region, but the region's investment in the United States. Number two, uh, lifting up 
and looking towards a vision for better international worker standards, cleaner environments, safer environments, collective bargaining, chance for international workers to, to be able to compete on a level playing field. And number three, building a more inclusive economy across the region. Inclusive economy across the region, really. All right, so the whole climate change thing is sickening. China laughs at us. Uh, they are basically saying that they're going to look for renewables, but they will not commit to getting rid of coal. Coal's the dirtiest fuel around. We have a lot of it. We don't really use it as much as we used to. Maybe that's good. Maybe it's not. China's using it, building a coal plant a week. So I don't really get it. So we'll consider that a win. Good. You think about it. Then we're going to look at fentanyl, the precursors to fentanyl sold to Mexican cartels. They said they're going to crack down on it. How will they crack down on it? It's not really clear how they will. Establishing communications between the defense divisions. Fine with that. That makes sense. But they don't like us and we don't like them. They're not going to like what we do. And we don't really like anything about what they do, but we don't really show them. We don't really confront them. We do things to intimidate them or to show that we will not give in backstep. A lot of this stuff happened because Nancy, a lot of the fracture happened because Nancy Pelosi decided to go there. They said, don't send the speaker there. She won anyway. And they went ahead and they've been buzzing and harassing Taiwan since. Latest was, I think, September 28th send hundreds of flights over there, make it seem like a simulated invasion. So we'll talk about what can get done. They're going to try to do something to make Joe Biden look better. Now, Mike Pillsbury told us yesterday he's an expert in the region, worked with Trump. Trump, He gave Trump a ton of recommendations on dealing with the Chinese. He said, I don't think the communists care. Even though they want Joe Biden to win, they won't go about making him look good. I think they're very practical. They understand a society. They think they just might. Here's John Radcliffe, cut eight. The old football coach Bill Parcells used to say, you are what your record says you are. And in the case of Joe Biden, he's O for everything when it comes to China. I mean, from, from day one, his diplomats getting rebuked on public, uh, on U.S. soil, to uh, getting the middle finger on COVID, to a spy balloon that uh, after it completed its mission and it was finally shot down, um, we've been chasing them uh, to have conversations with us. This really seems like the culmination of the Biden begging tour where he's been sending his his cabinet members over to beg for this meeting. And now, you know, we're going to have this uh, this uh, sit down tomorrow where, you know, um, it's not even just a matter of having low expectations. It's this idea that we have nothing to gain and everything to lose when Joe Biden is the one negotiating on behalf of the American people. It really is. And what bothers me most as we fast forward over to Israel, Israel is now showing that the headquarters of Hamas, as I mentioned, are in hospitals and under mosques and in children's centers. Uh, and there's a story. You go to Jerusalem Post right now. And if you click on this video and they have the translation underneath it, it shows um, Al Jazeera in the hospital and there looks like emergency room. And they ask the guy, what do you think? And he says, Hamas hides behind us. Why are they here? They should be out in the battlefield. They caused all this. And while the guy's saying that Al Jazeera's reporter literally walks away mid sentence. So the people, Palestinian people, and I hope there's some good ones there that just want to live their normal lives and have no problem with Israel at this point. If there's somebody that could emerge, you would be quite helpful, but no one has. If you go and give that message, your family will be killed. So we're helping the Palestinian people by wiping them out to some degree. Not we, but I think we have special ops there trying to find our hostages. There's a report in, uh, in play right now. They say that with a handful of Palestinians released and a five-day pause, 
they will release 70 hostages. Tough call. What would you do? Might do it. Might do it with the precursor. If I see any movement, we're going to attack. If I see any movement of mass troops and camouflage moving towards the Egyptian border, uh, you're dead. And if you shoot, you're dead. But the other big story in the region, our guys have been attacked 58 times. We have had uh, 27, they say, injuries, but they're minor, and 24 TBIs. The concussions that come and often cause brain damage down the line can cause long bouts of depression as well. So we're letting this happen. We've struck back, drum roll, please, four times. Four times. It just bleeds a weakness that doesn't work in this area. Secretary of Defense Austin knows better, but I sense this president's in charge. Here's Lindsey Graham last night, cut 14. Well, it's pretty clear to me that the model they're embarking upon is to try to keep Iran close, reward them if they promise to do anything, whether they do it or not. We paid $6 billion for hostages, and we got an attack by Hamas against Israel. The idea of trying to curry favor with the Iranians is not working. The only thing the Ayatollah fears is a strong America. They're really emboldened by uh, uh, Biden's weakness. If we give them one dollar of money after the Hamas attack on Israel, you'll get more attacks. Got it. one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Listen, Martha McCallum's going to come out. Uh, you know, Senator Lindsey Graham's frustration. He knows that. He knows what Joe Biden is like. He used to travel with him before he was vice president. They used to be friends. He doesn't recognize this guy. Clearly lost his fastball. He's urging somebody to watch television and see what needs to be done. Guess who else thinks so? Senator Blumenthal. Things are blurring a little bit. For us to get better, we got to get on, on. We have to have both sides on both sides of issues and get back to legitimately debating again instead of what Republicans think is what I think. What Democrats think is what I think. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. That's a real problem because we, we and this is not just her. We've been signaling this from, from Kirby on down and President Biden that we don't want a war. We don't want to expand it. Uh, and then we're hitting these little pinprick strikes out there. And, and, of course, as I've been saying, you know, our, our troops there need to come out and need to move to a more defensible position and not just sit out there vulnerable because the only thing they're doing right now is providing a point of vulnerability for us because if any are killed, there's going to be a lot of calls to strike directly at Iran. And But just asking them not to do it begs them almost to do it, especially these groups who have an incentive on getting us to come in because they want this war to spread out yeah. to bring other people in on their side. So... It's frustrating to see 58 attacks against our guys. We hit back four times and we wonder why the retaliations get stronger and stronger. And we have uh, 27 TBI injuries. With me right now is Martha McCallum. If you're smart enough to be watching Fox Nation, uh, you see her. And Martha also is set to host her show at 3 o'clock today. Uh, Martha, the attacks have not stopped since Sunday. We've got four or five more. Yeah, I mean, you know, basically they're so minimized. And you talk about these traumatic brain injuries 
that's not a minimizing thing for these people who suffer these injuries. That, that's a potentially life-altering situation. Yeah. Some of them may be concussed and may get better, and we certainly hope they all get better. But, you know, the idea that these are, oh, oh everybody returned to duty, you know, is sort of the line on it, um, which is, is troublesome. So that's one side of it. The other side is that uh, we see what happens when you send a strong message. Just, you know, you have to learn from history. In the past, when Iran was received, you know, that kind of strong message, whether it was from Reagan or whether it was the killing of Qasem Soleimani, um, it worked. It put them back on their heels. It sent them back into sort of a form of remission uh, in terms of their aggressive fighting behavior. So I guess they're just going to keep poking us and testing us until something really bad happens. I guess so. Uh, we'll have no choice at that point. But I just think sitting in a crouch doesn't work. Both thinks it sends the wrong message to our allies in the region. Uh, looking at what's happening now, Israel's getting better at the PR game. Mm-hmm. They're bringing in reporters with the IDF, even in risky situations. They're pointing out how these tunnels are getting the electricity. They're under the, the hospitals. They're getting better at it. And I think they have to realize that now. Just because you're right, it doesn't mean people are going to understand it. Yeah, there's a great piece in the Wall Street Journal. Um, they've had a, a lot of good reporting on this, and in particular over the past few days with regard to al-Shifa and the way that Israel is handling it. There's a moment in the reporting where what, an IDF member is looking down at a certain area and they see three militants leaving with people from the hospital who are evacu- evacuating the hospital, and they have to make a decision whether or not to take them out. With snipers, they decide not to take them out, but then it follows it. And later on, they get one of them, I think, in another location because he's separated from civilians and they're able to isolate him and take him out. It also takes you inside their command centers, which are pretty extraordinary. And, um, you know, how they choose what kind of weapon is the most precise in this environment. What can we do? Is it, you know, is it a drone in this case? Is it a sniper in this case? Um, to try to minimize casualties as much as they can. You know, I mean, if Hamas cared about the civilians being killed, they would be part of the force moving them into these areas where they can leave, right? right? They would say, you know, we, we know you're not going to give us a ceasefire, but we have this, you know, couple of hour pause. We're going to, don't shoot at us. We're going to take people out. We're going to move them into this evacuation line, which is basically making a corridor down the center of, of the strip. And uh, we'll get them out. They don't want people to leave, obviously. They have absolutely, they, they say that, you know, they, they rejoice in their martyrs. And um, it's part of the process for them. Martha, I think that they don't want to govern either. No, they don't. I, I think they, they have no interest it. in governor. They say that. Right. They, they say, say we're not we're not going to bring water. We're not going to bring electricity. We're here to change the whole Middle East. Right. And you do it, basically. We want permanent war. You know, Jennifer Griffin told me something you probably know I didn't. I didn't know Qatar was urged by the Israelis to to accept Hamas's political wing because they said we need a line of communication with this terror That's interesting. So yeah. I did not know that. So they take all in, and they, we obviously have a big base there. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know that, so it sheds a little bit of light. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about a five-day pause for the release of 70 hostages along with some Palestinian prisoners? Well, you know, uh, people above my pay grade have to make these decisions. I think five days feels like a lot of time. You can get people out in much less than five days if you have 70 women and children that you're ready. I I think that it becomes increasingly difficult for them to maintain these hostages 
it's not easy in the environment that they're in to keep people alive and to keep them healthy enough to be worth something to them. Some of them so, are old. They're like 80s. Yeah, no, I, I think that they need to get rid of some of these hostages unless they want to kill them, which we obviously hope they don't do. Um, so I, I think they can probably narrow that window and get those 70 people out. I think, it, I think you know, working something out along those lines is, is, is a good idea. Yeah, I mean, 70 is a lot. I mean, just to think about the... I was encouraged the, that 70 are definitely alive. If they're if they're bartering with 70, that tells us that 70, you know, about a third, they know are alive. I don't believe anything Omar says, and nobody listening to us does, mm-hmm. but they say we've killed 50 in trying to kill them. Mm-hmm. So through uh, ancillary strikes. Benjamin Netanyahu doesn't have an answer to the question of what happens next. Nobody. He's honest about it. Well, we're open. We're open to it. Have you heard of a, a workable plan? Well, it's, I know um, the Palestinian Authority has said that they don't want to take Gaza over again. But it's interesting because I talked to someone you spoke with a while back who um, is involved in gathering these voices of Gaza and getting these undercover um, people inside Gaza who are afraid to speak about their situation because if Hamas hears them trashing them, they'll be dead. Uh, but they say, you know, that that's what they want as Palestinians. They want a relationship with the West Bank. They want to have that, you know, sort of cohesiveness back again. They don't want to be ruled by Hamas. Right. They are living in the same situation that Iranian women are living in under the mullahs. They have to wear hijab everywhere they go. The economy is awful. This one young woman in this video says, you know, I, I wish we could be, why can't we be like Tel Aviv? Why can't we have restaurants and, and bars and like a nice place to live on the water? 18,000 were going in Natagaz and not anymore. Yeah. We'll see. Martha, don't move. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. This joint venture is one where one partner has robbed the other one blind. What our intelligence and the facts tell us is that a rising China has been built on the, the intellectual property threat, uh, theft and economic and military espionage in the trillions of dollars uh, over the years. And, um, you know, it, it uh, you know, this just really underscores that uh, Joe Biden and this administration um, has been soft on China, just as they've been soft everywhere uh, with all of our adversaries, Iran and Russia. China's advanced around the globe. Their positions have improved since Joe Biden has been president. And it's why China will be uh, working to to influence and interfere the election in 2024. They want Joe Biden to continue to be a weak oh, U.S. president. Uh, that is John Radcliffe. I'm sure he'll go back in some form if Trump does win election. Martha McCallum, our show starts at 3 um, we got uh, Mitch Album coming up shortly, but Martha, your thoughts about the stakes at this summit? We know we have some fentanyl agreement on precursors. We know we have an agreement to to reestablish communication between defense ministers. Okay, and we know we are going to agree, according to FoxNews.com, on not putting AI into our defense uh, weapons. Which, uh, according to experts, it's all of my head. That's a huge mistake because it's a huge that advantage like for a, us. That sounds like a pretty big mistake. Um, we lost that military communication line after Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan. She said she could do whatever she wanted. So that was the response to that. You know, I, I just um, it, it's the president's language that I'm sort of listening to and watching closely. And he's still talking about China 
as if they are not an adversary, as if they are just a competitor and saying that we are, you know, working to sort of find some alliances. China's in a very difficult economic position right now. And I'm just curious. I mean, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when they're talking because she doesn't really spend a lot of time with other people. He's very reclusive. He has does not his own people, according to reports, have a hard time getting face-to-face time with him. So he obviously has seen, he obviously senses that there's an opportunity for him. He wouldn't be talking to Biden if he didn't think he could get something out of it, right? I think. And then to go meet with these CEOs for $40,000 right. no, they're at hurting. Table. Their economy is hurting and they need to have some economic relief and to rebuild some of those relationships. I think he feels probably that he's, they've gotten away with it for so long in the circumstances that Ratcliffe points to in terms of the espionage and the economic warfare that's been going on for decades. He'd like to just be back in that position where he can get what he Steel. needs. Exactly, where he can get what he needs with all of these agreements and go back to the good old days for China when right. every company in America wanted to do business with China. He wants to get back there, but they also want right. to you know, make moves on Taiwan, um, you know, harass right. uh, ship, Philippine ships in, in the uh, waters off of China. You know, if you watch the videos of the stuff that they do, it's absolutely insane. It's insane. Three o'clock, who can we expect? So we're going to talk to Mike Gallagher about what's going on with this China agreement. He's very clear-eyed. He's the chair of the China Commission in the House, and we will speak to him. We're also going to have a close look at what's going on in the Al-Shifa hospital with one of Benjamin Netanyahu's top lieutenants. So we'll speak to him as well. And you're going to have a lot of uh, riding the news. Uh, There's a lot of news all day. Out to San Francisco and back. Martha, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Brian. Mitch Albom's next with a great book. Sadly, it's applicable today. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. It's about the Holocaust. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Guess who's finally in studio? Mitch Album, best-selling author, as you know, host of Tuesday uh, People Podcast. His latest book is called The Little Liar. It is fantastic, and sadly, it's time. It's timely. Good for sales, not for life. Uh, but Mitch, it always gets you thinking. And Mitch, I think you've done it again with uh, with The Little Liar. First off, great to see you in person. Right, so Brian, I always enjoy seeing you. We go back a long way, back to when we were both doing sports. Right, but you are always way above, and I always appreciate uh, getting a chance to talk to you about life and sports. And I'd like to talk about both. First, the premise of The Little Liar. Um, it's actually the opposite. This, this, this little kid that doesn't lie is being taken advantage of. Can you set the scene for us? Sure. It's uh, during World War II. This little boy named Nico lives in a town in Greece. The Germans invade the Nazis, and they find out that he's never told a lie before. His whole village believes him, so they kidnap him. They decide to use him as a weapon, and they say, listen, you can go back to your family. All you have to do is stand on the train platform for a few days and tell people who are getting on the trains that they're going to new jobs and new homes, and everything's going to be fine, and then you can go back to your family. So he does this thinking he's telling the truth, and then on the last day, he sees his own family being shoved into a boxcar, and he finds out that these trains are actually going to the concentration camps. And he's held back, and his family disappears, and he, he never sees them again. And it follows him from through the war, all the years that passed, 10, 40 years later, and how he deals with the consequences of this lie that he was forced to tell. And he actually loses the ability to speak the truth ever again. He becomes kind of – he changes his name, changes his identity – 
all because he's ashamed of, of what happened. And his family, meanwhile, tries to find him for all those decades to tell him that they understand that, you know, it wasn't his fault. And it follows all that story through. It's a big parable about truth and lying, which happens to be, as you say, somewhat timely right now. When did you get the idea? It's a true based on a true story, not about the boy, but the Germans actually did that. They would use uh, Jewish people on these train platforms to tell because you figure if you if you see a bunch of German guards and people say, where are we going? They say, we're taking the concentration camps to kill you. People aren't going to get on the trains. You know, they're going to say, well, I'll die right here. So they they had to come up with deceptions. The Nazis, Brian, they didn't succeed because they had bigger guns. They succeeded because they had bigger lies and people fell for them. Their own people fell for it at the beginning. That's how Hitler rose to power. And then the world fell for it for a while because they lied about everything that they were doing. And certainly they lied to every one of their victims of the millions of people that they killed. They even used to tell the Jewish passengers, um, give us all your money in the people in Greece. Uh, give us all your drachmas because they're not going to be good where we're going in Poland. And he will give you this receipt. And when you get in Poland, you take this receipt and you turn it in and you'll get all your money. And they did it. You know, they literally took the money from the people they were about to kill. That's how far their lives, their lies went. And I just think that that's something we always have to be on the lookout for. And when you write this book, it's about to come out in a couple of weeks, and then October 7th, a month, October 7th happens. What are you thinking? I'm thinking like, uh-oh, uh, I bet I'm going to get a lot of questions about, you know, did you write this book at this time? I, I didn't, but it, it has great resonance to what's going on in this time. In fact, Brian, I thought like I invented this wholly original kind of concept, a little boy, honesty being used against him. And then a war correspondent I, I was talking to over the weekend just got back from Israel told me when he read about my book, he said, did you hear the story about this kid named Tomer? I said, no. He said he was one of the kids living in one of those villages on the border with Gaza. And when Hamas terrorists came over, they they kidnapped him and they said that they were going to kill his family unless he went door to door in the village and knocked on the doors and they heard his voice because they knew him and say, it's safe to come out. You can come out. They're, they're gone. And when the people came out, they shot them. And they, he did this door-to-door thinking, well, this is the only way I can this save my This is on the 7th of October? Yeah. And, and in the end, they killed him. So even the things, the evil that you can imagine in writing a novel is exceeded by the evils of the real world. Mitch Albums here, The Little Liar, is his, his latest thought-provoking book that's out of fiction but based on real life. It was also brought to my attention that Joe Rogan was on his podcast, and he was talking about George Soros. In a 60 minutes interview, if you want to put the headsets on, Mitch, I know you're used to doing that from your radio show. Yeah. And listen to this story. Uh, this is really striking. You're a Hungarian Jew who escaped the Holocaust by posing as a, a Christian. Right. And you watched lots of people get shipped off to the death camps. Right. I was 14 years old. And I would say that that's when my character was made. My understanding is, is that you went out with this protector of yours who swore that you were uh, his adopted godson. Yes, yes. Went out, in fact, and helped in the confiscation of property from the Jews. That's right, yes. I mean, that's, that sounds uh, like an experience that would send lots of people to the psychiatric couch for many, many years. Was it difficult? Uh, not, not, not at all. Not at all. Uh, maybe as a child, you don't you don't see the connection, uh, but it was it created no no problem at all. No feeling of guilt. No. That if I weren't there, 
Of course, I wasn't doing it, but somebody else would would, would be taking it away anyhow. You know, well, the, whether it, I was there. That's pretty not, much, you know. Where, so Steve Croft mm-hmm. talking to him in 1998 on 60 Minutes. That's not exactly like you're talking about, but using a kid to get confiscate yeah. and knowing he's Jewish, right, and having to keep quiet about it, and you know, forcing people to lie about their own identity to survive. You know, it was Goebbels, sadly, who said a very prophetic thing. A lie told once is always easily seen as a lie, but a lie told a thousand times becomes the truth. And that's that's the premise that the Nazis, you just keep telling the same thing over and over again, and people will believe that it's the truth. So when you write these characters, you're making them up of a consolidation of your thoughts and people. I get it. I have never written fiction before. But do you get close to this character that doesn't exist? And oh, yeah. Do you feel sadness and emotions of that person? You have to. If you don't, if you don't kind of cry when they cry or smile when they smile or, or you know, when the girl who's been in love with them since she was 11 years old finally finds him decades later and, he's, and she has to say to him, I know who you are. You know, it's okay to tell me who you are. You have to feel that in your heart. Otherwise, you can't create it on the page. So how would – is it when you write something like this and you expose it and you first begin talking about it, you just started talking about it just this week, is it good? Do you like talking about it? I mean, does it, is it almost therapeutic to go through it again? Well, I mean, I, Forget I, the sales. It's just because I think this story means so much to you. Well, it is. It, you know this because you do the same. You're doing it right now with your book. You have to sum up something that's taken you years to create in about 12 seconds. And you always want to say, but also there's this, and there's this other part, and there's this other part, but you realize you know, people can't absorb it. That's not, you know, you have to, they have to read it in order to absorb like that. So I like talking about it in a conversation like this because I get a few minutes to right. spread out over it. But the ones that are, the whole interview is three minutes long, you know, um, it's tough because you want to sum it up. But, you you know, you, it's more, it took more than three minutes to make. See, you're like me in that I want people to get it, but I don't want to force you. Yeah. Right. If you know what, so we had Ted Cruz on. He's a little different. Every nine seconds in my book, you got to buy the book. In my book, <laughs> yeah. and, like, and I'm not putting yeah. down anybody. Yeah. I just can't get myself to no. do that because I yeah. want you to choose it. Right. Right. I don't and, want it to be. And that's what you want people to be inspired. Now, you and I are blessed. I've written more than one book, so you know people hear Tuesdays with Maury or the five people you meet in heaven. They say, "Oh, I read that guy. I like that guy. I can. Yeah. I, I'll go so get his book." Yeah, but if I suppose if it was my only book, right. I would every twelve seconds would say, well, "As I say in my book, and as I say in my book, and as I say," because you feel like this is the only chance you're going to get. Uh, I want to talk to you on on One Nation on the weekend, uh, Saturday at nine o'clock uh, Eastern time. I'll talk to you more about this, but just um, it's almost that you try to evolve as a person through your books. And if I asked you Tuesday with Maury where the foundation was laid, you're already famous as a sports guy and then a sports writer, and then you write that book, and it goes unbelievable off the charts to make a movie about it. But does it change you at all? Oh, 100%. And I'll tell you exactly how because you'll appreciate this. Before that book, and I was on the sports reporters ESPN, you know. Watch every Sunday. People would stop me in airports and they would say, hey, sports guy, you know, who's going to win the Super Bowl? And I'd say, Patriots, and go up the escalator, you know. After Tuesdays with Maury, people would recognize me. They'd say, my mother died of cancer, and the last thing we did was read your book together. Can I talk to you? And you can't get on the escalator and go, Patriots. And You have to stop, and you have to talk. And I had to stop and talk, not to one or ten or a hundred or thousands, but tens of thousands of people over the years 
about this. And it changed me because it showed me how many people are grieving and how many people are walking around with holes in their heart and how many people yearn for a mentor and all the lessons from Tuesdays with Maury. And it's not an accident that I never wrote another sports book after Tuesdays with Maury. I've written 10 books since then, and none of them have been about sports, and all of them have been about themes that Tuesdays with Maury kind of touched on. I'm, I'm a little bit, you're much deeper than I did, but I was doing sports and I just got hired here as a sports guy, and I was allowed to do news, and then years go by. So then 9-11 happens, and I was so thankful that I wasn't locked into sports. Number one, I couldn't have stayed here. Right. Number two is to be able to go deep into the people and find out they lost their loved ones. They had the pictures up, and they're walking around. And I'm thinking to myself, thank goodness, if I'm going to cover the Yankees and Mets, it's going to be how they're helping other people. Right. So, But I never diminish people in sports. In fact, I see it as a relief. No. Um, the five people you meet in heaven. What do you think about with that, and how do you research that? Well, The Five People in Heaven was a novel, and it was based on an old uncle of mine who actually told me a story that uh, he died a couple of seconds on one of those near-death experiences. And while he was on the operating table, he lifted above his bed, and he looked down, and he saw all of his dead relatives waiting for him at the edge of his bed. Now, he was a kind of salty old sailor guy, and I said to him, what did you do, Uncle Ed? And he said, what did I do? I told him, get the hell out of here. I'm not ready for you yet. And he went back into his body and he lived another 10 years. But I always thought, well, what a cool concept, like people are waiting for you. What if people are waiting for you, but they're not necessarily your relatives? What if they're just people who you interacted with like for five minutes on earth, but you changed their life forever and they changed yours just because of something you did? And so I created a story about a guy who doesn't think he matters, uh, but he, he dies and goes to heaven and he meets these five people who he, whose lives he changed and shows that everybody mm-hmm. matters. Everybody touches somebody in some way. Lastly... Lesser note, totally different. I watch sports now, and I'm watching the people that used to deliver the sports, and they're talking about point spreads, and they're talking about the bets and the parlays, and I'm watching other sports. I can't believe it. It's right before an NFL game, so obviously it's getting ratings. Yeah. I'm. I'm go ahead. You laugh at me, but I just think it's in the big picture. It's bringing revenue, and it's bringing maybe additional interest, but I think it's ruining the games. It changes. Look, sports should be about we want to root for our team to win, uh, we want to beat the other guys. That's it. When it starts getting in about the over-under is 48. You know, the over-under is 48. Why are they kicking a field goal? That's got nothing to do with the game. But if that's where your money is, that's suddenly you're going to be rooting about that and not caring about the necessarily outcome of the game. And you and I were talking before about athletes start getting all this abuse because I had I had you guys, you know, winning this game. I had you guys plus 10, and you dropped that, that pass in the end zone. You angry. cost me You're money. Angry. angry. And, and they might have even won the game, but they didn't win it by enough, and they get angry. The sports should be enough by itself. And the fact that not only has gambling – you know, dominated, but look at every commercial now in a football game, and it's Jamie Foxx or somebody else talking about ways that you can gamble on sports. It's it's totally different. I'm old enough to remember when that was totally taboo, when guys got thrown out of sports if they worked in a casino or had any kind of, the, you know, dealings with gambling, and now they're in bed with one another. And now they're saying analysts at ESPN can no longer, they can't bet, period. So they, mm. they made that mandate. Disney made that mandate. First, they didn't want to do gambling. Now they're doing it. Now they're telling these analysts, you can't gamble yeah. on these so, games. Right. So we can so, just take commercials that show you how you do it, but you can't do it. <laughs> right. So okay. and, and the, my last point on this is the players getting suspended. I mean, they, they yeah. keep it low profile because it's so tempting. Think you have one this. in Detroit. Jameson Williams missed the first six games of the year because he was betting on some other sport. You know, it's like, well, wait a minute. And he's a kid, but... 
It's like, hold on. The commercials, when we go to commercial break, are all about betting on us, but I'm not allowed to go bet on anything else. You're feeling about Pete Rose now? I think time will time will change his perspective on that for sure, I, you know, because certainly look at it now. I mean, it doesn't mean the same thing, does it? Um, let's bring back sports reporters. We just need four people. We'll audition them. We'll, we'll Fox, see if they I, do. I'm on Fox on Sunday mornings at 830. What, else, should... what else are you guys doing? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, wait, that hurts Fox and Friends, but you mean Fox okay. Sports. Fox uh, Sports. Mitch Album's got a brand new book out. It's certain to be uh, as big a seller as all the others. It's called The Little Liar. Uh, thanks so much, Mitch, for joining us. I appreciate it. Great to see you, Brian. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.